If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to open it to 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one provided in the seat back right in front of you. You can open to 2 Samuel chapter 15 is where we'll be today and then on into chapter 16 as well. And I've kind of alluded to this a few times this morning, um, but maybe you are here this morning in, in kind of a difficult situation, and maybe it's even a situation, a difficult situation that you have created. Right? It's something that's come as a result of your own actions or maybe your own words. Have you ever gone through something like that where you know, something that you said in the past or something that you did you know, was, was wrong, it was sinful, and you're kind of feeling the consequences of that, feeling the effects of that, and uh, or maybe things have piled up one on top of another and it's just kind of creating havoc in your life. And again, maybe it's your own actions, your own decisions, your own words that has created that chaos. We have some euphemisms in the English language to describe that. We say your chickens have come home to roost, right? You did something and now you're, you're feeling the effects. Or maybe we say you've made your bed and so now you get to lie in it. Or will we might say that you have skeletons in your closet or there's something in your past that has come back to haunt you. So maybe you've had a situation like that where your chickens have come home to roost. I think this is a situation that every parent has been in. I think pretty much every parent could probably think of a time where they told their kids, you know, not to do something, and then they get caught by their kids doing the very thing they told them not to do, and we're, we're kind of put in a sticky situation uh, where all of a sudden we're, we're confronted with the consequences of our actions and how we try to get out of that. And also, when it comes to kids, sometimes we just have to let kids make their own decisions, even bad decisions, even though we know it's going to hurt the child in some way because they need to learn that actions have consequences. Things happen. Each action has an equal and opposite reaction. And so as parents, sometimes we let kids do things that we know will be painful or difficult simply because we want them to learn that the chickens will come home to roost and it's an unpleasant experience. Well, what do we do about that? What do we do when we've created some kind of situation like that of our own making and our own actions in the past have now brought forth a very undesirable present? Well, I think we try to fix it as much as we can, right? As much as it depends on me. If I've said something or done something in the past that has you know, been sinful and it's created this difficulty or this chaos in my life right now, I believe the burden is, is on me to go and try to fix it to whatever degree that I can. And the Bible certainly directs us in that, right? You leave your gift at the altar and you go and make peace with your brother. Every month when we have communion, I encourage you to examine yourself to see if there's any sin in you or sin between you and someone else. And if there is, you should forego communion and go and make peace with that person. So the Bible gives us instruction about that as much as we can to whatever degree we're able if we have created a mess we should go and try to clean that mess up but you know what sometimes there's just nothing that can be done about the mess that we have made and there's no amount of cleaning or cleansing that we can do to kind of fix the chaos that has come to reign and that's very much the situation that we find David in here this morning in these chapters from 2 Samuel, he has made some pretty significant blunders, and those blunders have come back to haunt him. His chickens have come home to roost. 
And I think we get some answers to those questions about, you know, what do we do when our own actions have created this mess? Because again, we see that in these chapters, and we're going to see what David does. And like I said, David is, he's had some pretty big failures. He's definitely not perfect. And praise the Lord, the Bible never pretends that he is. It shows us his flaws and his failures in detail. And we've seen those. He's has by this time, eight or nine wives in his life. He has dozens of concubines. He has who knows how many children with all of these different women. And guess what? There's starting to be some friction between those children, and certainly I'm sure between those mothers as well. And these are all moral failings on David's part. It's how he's making his bed. He's making his bed by having multiple wives and concubines and having multiple children from multiple women expressly against what God told him to do. God never said to do that. In fact, he said, you shouldn't have more than one wife. And David said, well, I'm the king and I know better and I'm going to do what I want to do. And so he did. And it has created all kinds of chaos in his life. And in particular, this chaos is going to come, the chickens are going to come home to roost in the form of David's son, Absalom. We've seen the situation with Absalom starting to boil over in the last couple of chapters. If those of you who weren't here last week because you were down at the winter retreat, you should go back and read those chapters to get up to speed on what we're talking about today. But in brief, David has this son Absalom, and he has another son named Amnon, who actually rapes his own sister named Tamar, and then Absalom takes revenge by murdering Amnon. And so there's already some pretty significant upheaval in David's family. You've got this rape and this vengeful murder amongst his own children, and this is all a result of, again, just playing fast and loose with the commands of God and doing what he wanted to do. Now, it's not as though David is responsible for that horrible crime of rape and murder, but we can't deny that David's actions of, again, taking all these wives and having all these children certainly created the scenario where these kinds of things are going to take place. And then Absalom goes one step further, and he gets this idea that this is all symptomatic of his father's failure of leadership, and he believes that he would be a better king than David. So he starts to sow seeds of doubt in the minds of the people of Israel. This is where if you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, it tells us that after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So what's happening here is Absalom is essentially turning people away from David and towards himself. But note that he isn't, you know, he isn't swaying people by his honor or by his ability to provide or protect. He has no merits that should make him king in that kind of respect. 
Rather, he's doing it by essentially growing in popularity, by verbally attacking his rival, and then making his own promises. Now, we're pretty familiar with that, right? I mean, we have a political season here, and of course, you've all seen attack ads, right? That's a number one way to, to try to bring people to yourself is to attack, verbally attack your enemy. We've seen politicians do that all the time, and that's essentially what Absalom is doing here. My opponent has failed you. He hasn't done anything good for you. He's forgotten about the little guy like you, but not me. I won't ever forget about you. You have a friend in Absalom. That's essentially what he's doing. He is running a political attack campaign against his own father, David. He has no qualifications to be the king other than he's a good politician. It's not that he's a better king than David, but that he's simply more popular. And this goes on for a few years until more and more people are drawn to Absalom and he suddenly has tens of thousands who are with him on his side, including David's own chief advisor, a man named Ahithophel, which we're going to hear more about him next week. And to the point where it becomes apparent that Absalom is out to overthrow his father David and David has no choice but to abandon his capital city. If you skip down to verse 14... It says, David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David and his family and his servants flee the city of Jerusalem. Now that is a big deal. The king has left his capital city. He's essentially surrendered it, his base of operations, his throne from which he rules over his kingdom. And now he's going on the run in the wilderness. There's no palace, there's no royal messengers, there's no regular communication with the army as there would have been otherwise. And we get a picture of just how humbling this is for David in verse 30. It says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered and all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went now obviously part of why David is in such grief is that he's been expelled from Jerusalem but of course that's not all there is to it of course his son is the one who wants his head on a platter and now we might ask ourselves why would David run away from his capital city? Why would he abandon it so quickly? And I think the answer is that the only other choice is to start a civil war against his own son. And what father wants that? And of course, no king would want to divide his nation in two and have them fight against each other. That's certainly no good kingdom to rule over. And also many of own David's own family, his aunts and uncles and cousins and children even, are on Absalom's side. And he has no desire to start a war with his own family. So the only option he has left is to run. And so he does. And also I think David is keenly aware that this is his mess. That his own sin has led him to tromping barefoot through the wilderness. His sin is what authored this scenario. And now his chickens have come home to roost. So it seems dubious for David to go to war over a mess that he himself made. But this is exactly what the prophet Nathan said would happen to David. Do you remember back a few chapters ago, back in chapter 12, after David's affair with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan meets him, rebukes him, and he tells him what's going to happen? This is what he says. If you want to flip back a couple of chapters to chapter 12, verse 11, this is what Nathan says. 
He says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. That was in response to when David stole uh, Uriah's wife and actually had him killed. So here's the question, I think, from, from all this mess that we're reading about. What do we do when we are in a bad situation of our own creation? Now, I'm willing to bet that most of us will probably never create a situation in which we have to flee our capital city and our throne and have to, you know, we're forced with the prospect of civil war against one of our own family members. We probably won't find being that kind of a mess, but certainly we do create messes for ourselves, maybe in a harsh or careless word that we say, maybe in something we do to a friend or a family member or even a spouse that comes back to bite us something that's sinful and wicked that's said in the heat of the moment but creates deep wounds, deep hurts. What do we do when we find ourselves in that kind of chaos? Again, I think we have to clean it up as much as we can, but there's more to it than that also. And we're going to see what David does here. The question is, what do we do when we're in a bad situation of our own creation? And the answer is, we lean on God's grace. So as David is leaving the city in fear for his life, two of his priests, uh, Zadok and Abiathar, go back into the city and they get the Ark of the Covenant to bring it with David as he leaves the city. Their thinking is that God's presence is with the Ark, that's where God dwells between the two cherubim on the Ark, that's the symbolic place of God's dwelling. God is with the Ark, the Ark will be with David, ergo God will be with David, so we have to go get the Ark and bring it with David wherever he goes. So that's what they do, they go and get it, they bring it out of the city with David, thinking that God's presence will be with him and maybe bring him some kind of good fortune, maybe some good luck or something. But you know what? David actually says, no, bring that back into the city. Go down to verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Now listen, there's something very, very big going on in David's response there to whether or not the ark should come with him. He knows that he has created this mess that he's in right now, that he bears at least some of the responsibility for this situation that he's in. And he also knows that God is going to clean up the mess one way or another, right? He trusts that God is going to clean up this mess. Now look at the two possibilities David lays out for how this scenario will come to an end. He says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both the ark and his dwelling place. In other words, one possible way this ends is with David back in Jerusalem, back on the throne, back in the temple of the Lord, worshiping him. God will somehow fix this mess I've made in a way that works for me, that is good for me, that will restore me to where I was. That's one possibility. But David also realizes there's another possibility. And that possibility is, is that the kingdom will be taken from him, and maybe he will even die in the process. 
He says, but if God says, I have no pleasure in you, then let him do what seems good to me. So those are the two possibilities. Those are the two possible outcomes of what, what might happen after this whole mess that David has created. Either God will be gracious and merciful and restore the kingdom to David, or he will feel the judgment of God for his sin. And notice that David has resigned himself to either one of those possibilities. If the kingdom is taken from him, he gets it, right? How can he complain? He understands why God would, could choose to do that. After all, again, David didn't do anything to earn the kingdom. It was a gift of God, so how can he complain if it's taken away? And now, since his own sin has caused such upheaval in the kingdom, how could he complain if it gets taken away? How could he accuse God of being unfair or unjust? He can't. He knows that God would be right, in fact, and just to take the kingdom from him. And if the kingdom were taken from him, it would be no more than what David deserves. The two scenarios David uh, is facing here are either God graciously restores the kingdom or God takes it away as a just judgment for sin. And David has come to grips with either, either scenario because that's just how much he trusts in his God. And he knows that God will clean up the mess he made by either giving him the grace of restoration or by taking the kingdom from him, which in reality is less than what David's sin deserves. Either way, David receives grace. Do you see that? If God restores him to the throne, it's not something David has earned, but it's a working of God's grace. To restore David to the throne and to bring a, a good conclusion to this whole mess by giving him back what he had. That'll be God's gracious favor towards David. But even if not, even if God does take away the, king, the kingdom from David, David knows that in reality, compared to what his sin deserves, that's just a drop in the bucket. So even if the worst thing were to happen, David knows that even that, even that worst thing is evidence of God's grace. Because what I really deserve is far more than that. I deserve far more punishment than that. And listen, that I think is a huge principle that is vitally important to the Christian life. Because listen, if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus, God will never, never give you the punishment that your sin deserves. Your sin is a detestable offense to a holy God, and he is so holy that his holiness demands that an eternal measure of punishment be doled out for your sin. What you deserve is to be beaten within an inch of your life, to have your body marred beyond recognition, to be nailed to a cross, to be run through with a spear, to be cut off from the goodness of God. That is what your sin deserves. But listen, if you are in Christ, that is what you will never, ever get. Jesus has paid the full price for your sin once and for all, past, present, and future. So rather than pour out his wrath upon you, God has elected to pour it out on Jesus as he hung on the cross so that by faith he takes your sin on himself and he has that eternal measure of punishment poured out on himself. So listen, Whatever difficulties you have in this life, whatever challenges you face, whatever, you know, you mess up and, and you sin and you fail in a spectacular way and it creates a really horrible situation, that is far less than what your sin deserves. 
Your sin deserves an eternal punishment in hell. Now, I don't say that to trivialize your suffering or to say that, you know, you should just buck up and be happy and and be glad that, well, at least you're not in hell. So that's not what I'm saying. Rather, I'm trying to give you some perspective. Whatever you suffer in this life is far less than what you deserve. And the only reason you don't receive what you deserve is the abundant grace of God. Folks, I think that should give us some perspective about the times in life that are hard, about the times in life that even are self-created bad times because I have sinned in a spectacular way and it has created chaos for myself and for my family and other people. But you know what? It's not even close to what we deserve. So do you see how even when we go through those times, I can still see God's grace even in the hard times because the hard time I'm going through isn't anything close what I deserve to go through. And by his grace, God has kept what I deserve from me, even though this right now is difficult. And even though maybe my sin created this. You know what that is, folks? When when your sin creates a difficulty and chaos, you know what that is? It's just the smallest, tiniest, little taste of God's judgment of sin. Because God's judgment of sin is eternal. Right? It's a divine measure of judgment. And if you're in Christ, you don't taste that. You don't get one drop of that. It all went on Jesus. So that when things get difficult here, we can say, we can look at the difficulty and feel it deeply and yet still say, praise the Lord. Because this is just nothing compared to what I deserve. In a sense, even our suffering, our self-inflicted pain even, is evidence of God's grace, of God withholding his judgment from us. And so it's, it's an, and it's a, this is a crazy thought, but even our self-inflicted suffering is an occasion to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Even my life is bad right now, you know, and I've, I've said some things that I wish I hadn't, but it's cr- created all this division But this is evidence of God's grace because it could be so much worse. But he has withheld it from me in his mercy. And listen, if you have that understanding, then you can trust God with whatever happens. And that's David's attitude here, right? When they bring the ark out, and he says, no, I'm not going to treat the ark like some good luck charm. You know, oh, well, I've got the arks on my side. I'm not going to do that because I know that God is in control. He's going to clean this up. He's going to do it in one of two ways. He's going to restore me to the kingdom. And if he does that, praise God for his grace. Or if he doesn't restore the kingdom to me, he takes it away from me, even if I lose for my life, praise God for his grace because even that is less than my sin deserves. Folks, that is a countercultural way of thinking, a counterworldly way of thinking about our suffering and about our sin and about God's grace. But I think that's what's going on here. This is David's understanding. No matter what happens, God's grace prevails, even if I end up six feet beneath the dirt. It's still God's grace that is ruling and reigning in my life. There's another example of this in chapter 16. Now, in chapter 16, David is still on the run from Absalom. Uh, He's out in the wilderness. Go to verse 5 of chapter 16. It says, When King David came to Bahurim, 
there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and all his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. So this Shimei guy, who happened to be a relative of Saul, is cursing David, and David's bodyguard says, hey, I'm going to go over there and chop his head off for talking to the king like that, which was actually the proper response. God's law prohibited calling down a curse on the king But instead of chopping off the guy's head, what does David say? He says, maybe this is part of God's plan. Maybe this is part of the resolution to this whole mess, is what this guy is is saying right here. Maybe this is just a little taste of what my sin deserves, is having this crazy guy call down curses on me and throw dirt at me. And if that's what it is, you know what? It is way, way less than I deserve. Or maybe God's grace will show up in a different way and I'll be totally restored to the kingdom and he'll repay me with good for all this stuff that I've gone through. Do you see how this is the same thing that David said about bringing the ark along with him when when he was leaving Jerusalem? He basically says this, I'm going to trust God to deal with this mess that I've made and whatever he decides to do, whether it's restore me or take it away, it's still evidence of his grace. And folks, we can trust God because God is overflowing with grace. And even in the times when we've made a huge mess, when people have gotten hurt, when lives have been changed, God's grace is still there. Even when we're suffering, we can see his grace in just the the smallest amount of suffering that we're experiencing compared to the eternal amount we deserve. God's grace is there. And so that's what David David says. If he restores me, it's only because of his grace. If he allows me to feel the pain of my sin, it's not even close to what my sin deserves. So it's also evidence of his grace. Either way, I'm basking in the grace of God. So I will trust him. Man, I don't know about you, but that just rocks my world. Because how do we think about suffering? How do we think about sin? You know, when, when either you know, someone in our lives has, has created this chaos when they've sinned, or maybe I've even created the chaos when I've sinned, right? It's all about blaming and this and that and you know, trying to control everything and uh, the fallout and the damage control and whatnot. But 
David's telling us, I think, that this is all part of God's grace. And we never, I don't know about, I won't speak for you, I never, I'm so thick-headed when it comes to thinking about it like that. But that's what's happening. And, and listen, though, this is important, because that doesn't mean, just because you know, David has this very grace-centered perspective about his suffering, it doesn't mean that the end of the story is going to be wrapped up in a neat little package with a ribbon on top. Because that's not how David's story is going to end. In fact, it's going to become even more tragic, even more painful, and David is still going to stumble yet again before his story is over. And he thinks he's in pain here. He thinks his, his sin has caused tragedy here. He's only seen the tip of the iceberg, really, in these chapters. Leaving Jerusalem is the least of his worries when it comes to the, the chaos that his sin has created. But that's his perspective No matter what happens, it's God pouring out his grace upon me. And that's the point, and that's what David's learning. I can trust that God who no matter what happens in my life, no matter what I do, he's always there with grace to give. I can trust in him. And so perhaps you are in a mess of your own making. Perhaps your chickens have come home to roost Maybe you've recently made some bad decisions or said some bad things that have come back to haunt you. Maybe today, for the first time, you've realized that you have sinned and that God's judgment for sin is severe and you want to escape it. There's a cross. There's a cross with a Savior on it who was there and died there for you and then came back from the dead to prove his power over that sin that has so easily entangled each one of us. And he calls us to trust in him. Folks, we have a God who delights to dole out grace upon grace. We have a God of second and third and fourth and 765th chances. We have a God who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We have a God who went to the most extreme lengths to deal with your sin and who calls you to trust in him. It doesn't mean all your problems are going to go away, but you may have a new outlook on grace, a new understanding of what you deserve and what you don't deserve, a new opportunity to praise God for his grace in your life, even in times when your chickens come home to roost even in the difficult times that you have even created for yourself. God's grace abounds. We want to close our service this morning by singing together the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It's interesting because this this hymn talks about dealing with difficulty, right? Dealing with tragedy and hard times in life. But it it really, I think, drives home the point of what we've seen in these verses. This is all God's grace. Even the hard times are evidence and manifestations of God's grace in our lives. Listen to the the words from the first verse. We're going to sing them in just a moment. moment. But it says, "When, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, whether it's the peace like a river or the sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. As we read about David going up the Mount of Olives, right? Barefoot, with his head covered, and weeping. I imagine him 
singing that song. Whatever my lot, Lord, the peaceful river or the sorrows like sea billows, you've taught me to say it is well with my soul because you are a God of grace. Let's let that be our anthem this morning as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace, unspeakable, matchless grace. We could never fully comprehend the goodness of your mercy and your grace towards us. Lord, because we could never find the depth of our own sin. To think of the trade-off of my sin for Jesus' righteousness, something I completely don't deserve, and in fact, I've utterly deserved your righteous and just judgment, but Lord, you withhold it. And instead, you give me unmerited favor, this grace that I don't deserve. I can't begin to wrap my mind around it, Lord. But in the depths of that mystery, I praise you. Because it is in the depths of that mercy or that mystery where your glory shines the brightest. So God, I ask that you would give us just the smallest taste of that glory in our lives, in our families, our marriages. And Lord, that you would help us to mine the depths of our own sin, to see just how sinful we are. Lord, to see what we deserve and to come to the realization that we do not deserve your grace. And Lord, follow up that thought just as quickly with the reality that you have, you have doled out grace upon grace upon grace to a depth that we can't even fathom. Lord, your goodness to us is it's indescribable. It almost leaves me speechless. And yet here we are. So we ask the Spirit to take our groanings and put words to them and bring them to you. Lord, show us more of your grace. Show us more of our sin. Show us more of our unworthiness and show us more of how good you are. And Lord, again, so that we might be examples, not of moral perfection, but examples of people who have been redeemed, wicked, broken, sinful people who have been made whole, who have been restored, who have been forgiven by the God of grace. God, do this powerfully in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.